Hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am your host, Adam Duritz. I'm here with my friend and compatriot. And your lovely and talented co-host, James Campion. And the very one and only. Welcome back. This has been a fun couple of weeks because you're off in Europe and I was finishing up my book tour and we had a couple of weeks of the Garden Session stuff and I want to just publicly thank everybody who came to the to the uh, festival, the first Underwater Sunshine Festival, and everybody who worked it. Fantastic job by Ehud getting us all the music, and for Johnny M for being here and recording every interview, and it was all these weird levels and people coming and going and background noise, and uh, congratulations to you and Barbara and the whole staff. What a wonderful job, really, and uh, we thank everybody for listening and their kind comments on the uh, It was a blast. I really enjoyed it. It went uh, as well as one could hope, really. For the first time, I was thrilled. Cannot wait to do it again in April. Yes. Absolutely thrilled about that. Packed house. Uh, and also uh, happy to be back from Europe. It was really a great trip. Did some crazy stuff over there. And uh, not the least of which is uh, the stuff I just played you. Yes. Which is pretty cool. I know you want to talk about it, so I figured we should turn the mics on. I. <laughs> yes, let's share it with the listeners. Um, we very, very rarely talk about Kind of Crow's music unless it comes up in the, in the, uh, in the context of other discussions and as everyone knows Adam and I started together a couple of years ago now working on a book which I've been feverishly trying to get him some pages for for the new year so we can get going on that uh and so we hadn't seen each other again in a couple of weeks and um he just out of nowhere goes I'm gonna play this thing I really need to play this for you and I had no idea what it was and it was thankfully and brilliantly perhaps I may say the quintessential version of August and everything after. Finally, on tape with full orchestration, which I remember you telling me. Well, there aren't any other versions, really. There's like there's a bootleg none. from Disney Hall, and maybe I played it once or twice in you the did. band. Terribly, I have, though. That's right. I have a bootleg of that, and Adam and I talked about that, which is will be that discussion will be in the book. But I was going to say, interestingly enough, so when you played me the Disney stuff uh, at Disney Hall, and that would have been what, 2002, 2003? Is that right? Well, I'll tell you, kid. <laughs> um, I must have it marked down here somewhere. It is somewhere. I was very moved not only by that song, but all the different versions in there. And, 2005. Uh, 2005. So, and the first question I have to ask you after listening to that version is, is that the same orchestrations as the ones, the original ones that were in the, um, in the Disney thing? Because it sounds... Oh, yeah. It's the same too. orchestrations. It was, uh, once again, conducted by Vince Mendoza. Oh, it was? Um, yeah. I became a really big fan of Vince Mendoza's back. Uh, he did the orchestrations for the two Joni Mitchell albums, Both Sides Now, which is a set of standards with two, where each side ends with an original uh, Case of You on one side and Both Sides Now on the other side. And then he did the double album, Travelogue, which is a whole bunch of Joni's material. Right. And we've played uh, some of that on the podcast. Yeah, and brilliant stuff. And and when it came up at one point in 2004, 2005, that there was some company was putting together a series of concerts they were sponsoring with bands, with orchestras, uh, and they wanted us to do it. And I said I would, I would do it on one condition. They had to get us Vince Mendoza. Right. Um, and they did, and it was uh, an incredible experience for us. And I wish we'd recorded it at the time. The only thing we have is the board tape. But... Uh, for years, we've wanted to do something uh, to, you know, actually memorialize that, to get it down on tape somehow. Uh, but it's so prohibitively expensive. But then Amazon came along, they, you know, like they do the original programming. They have Amazon Originals for music as well. 
and they uh, wanted us to do something with an orchestra, and uh, they—they originally they asked to do Long December in December. They wanted to put it out for Christmas, and I said no. (laughs) I'm just like, I I don't think that song will be any. I don't think that song is going to be made any better by orchestration to me it's 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 good the way it is it doesn't need any of that shit but i said but we did do all these things and we have these orchestrations that have already been written that are pretty brilliant and the song you should do is the one no one's ever heard which was the cool thing about that concert too which was august and everything after um and i should mention that this isn't really the same august and everything after because uh the one that i was working on and not getting when we were making that album uh, it had some, some of the lyrics were just kind of crap, and so when we re, when we did it in 2005, I rewrote parts of it. Then, uh, I mean, the third verse is largely rewritten, um, and some of the fourth as well. And then I did uh, some more rewriting, just a little bit more this time, just to get it to where I wanted to get some things that weren't making sense to me that I had done uh, too quickly that I'd rushed through in 2005. Um, I mean, it's it's very much the same musical song, right? But, but I uh, thought that your choices were very interesting. Uh, the the first one is the in your first refrain, uh, there was one new lyric in there. I thought. Uh, I don't know about the first one. That, uh, it's different than the Disney one, which is different than the original bootleg one I have from a long time ago, which has a lot of the lyrics that you were trying on the first. I don't think the first, first chorus record. is any different. Um, maybe there's parts of the second verse that are for sure, and third verse is largely rewritten as is the fourth. Um, I think. And then you used North Dakota instead of New York City. Right, because it doesn't make sense. In the end, he's leaving to go to New York City. That's not – he's not going to find that same girl. So you were kind of – okay. Different, it needs to be a different place. Right. Um, That's a fair point. Yeah, the narrative is is linear. It's a geographical narrative. So Also, there were parts of it that just were – I was – when I was first writing them, sometimes it works when things just sound right and that there's a good reason for them. And sometimes they just sound right and they're not right. Um, they just sound good, and I, I had changed some of that too by the time we did it in two thousand five, and moved some of those things around. And I love how you had grown. That that was that whole period where you were in L A for a while, and there's 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 verses about L A and leaving, and well, it's about leaving San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like the fourth verse originally was I came down from North Dakota, and that cha- I had changed that to San Francisco by then, so North Dakota had kind of disappeared. Right. Um, I moved it in somewhere else in the song. But the um, line about it got too sleazy for me, so I went to New York. Is sort of follows. Yeah, but that wasn't in the original song. Correct. That, right. That, right. That was years later. Yeah, yeah. That when I moved that to New York, it made sense to change the other part away yeah. from New York. Um, yeah. Anyways, but we, we it was really cool because we went to uh, about four days after we finished recording. You know, me and Tom and Immer and Zoe, we took a trip down to. Uh, well, after we finished the 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 gigs. The gig in London, we took a trip to the west of Ireland for a few days just because we had four days to fuck around because Vince was working on something. And he had a free day on the 2nd, and we finished on the 28th. So we went to the west of Ireland for a few days and hung out there, um, did some drinking, did some really good eating, got some food poisoning, <laughs> and then came back to London uh, and uh, did the recording. And it was really cool because it, the, it only has me – Immer, Jim, and Millard on it. It's the 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 arrangement that Vince wrote was for bass, drums, pedal, steel, and vocal, and then uh, string section and and I think cor anglais, which is like a, an oboe. 
I think it's I think it's core anglais and not oboe. Yeah, that's that main instrument that sort of gives you that kind of. Yeah, you can hear the melody. Hum. It's playing a lot of the melody lines yeah. in it, the high melodies. Right. Um, so there's like a 22 piece string section and then one horn, core anglais or oboe. And we did it at Air Studios, which is uh, incredible. That's a studio uh, when George Martin left EMI and stopped working at Abbey Road. He set up Air Studios. It was at a different place then, and then he moved Air again because Air was his company that he set up. Um, when he stopped after producing the Beatles, he went to uh, he set up a second Air Studios later though, which is this one. It's in Lynnhurst Hall, which is this church, and they've gutted the middle of this church, the inside of this church, uh, and it's it's so beautiful. Did you and take a picture of that and post it on Instagram? Yeah, what it's the did? best sounding room I've ever heard. Even just hearing it through headphones in the next room, the room records like nothing I've ever heard. So we were in these uh, sound booths off the side, me and Emmer in one, pedal steel and vocals, and then Jim and Millard in another on either side looking into this, the church where it was so beautiful. And it was, it was really cool to get to record there. And it was quick. We did it in one night. Did, did, did the orchestra play while you guys played it? Yeah, and they were really freaked out and they really loved that. They, they almost never get to play with the musicians. And so we did it all together. Which is exactly how you did it, obviously, live in Disney. It's got that one great recitative where it just stops for a minute before the final verse. And it just and there's no way I think you could probably, well, I guess with a click track. Conductor. Oh, yeah, conductor. It's yeah, it's, it's so, I mean, I'm just saying with the conductor, of course, in a live setting like that, it's, it captures the, the beauty of that tension and that final yeah. thing before it takes it home. Yeah, and we have the conductor here, too. So uh, it was... It was really cool to do it that way. I mean, they wanted us to do it separately, and it would have been a little less expensive, but it didn't... To me, it made no sense, because the same reason I like the band to record together when we're doing something for the first time, because you get... It affects you. The, the way I sing is affected by the strings. The way the the pedal steel plays is affected by the strings. Uh, and the by the same token, the strings are going to be affected by the band. The swells that happen, the conductor hears all that. You know, he's going to be there to, like... It's going to affect how it all happens you know and, and it was it was that way they were listening to us too because at one point I did this really cool vocal like I just had a great take and it was done and the string players were all banging on the uh, banging the bows on their music oh, stands that's nice and I, at first I was like what are they doing and then I remember okay I know what that means <laughs> and then uh, Vince said that was quite a vocal Mr. Dritz and I was like alright cool nice it was a cool experience um, you know all, all within about we did it all in two or three hours that was pretty quick. Um, they get any film of this? Yeah, Ehud was there. It's cool. Um, that's what those, the picture I put up on. I didn't. Oh, maybe I did take that one. Some of them are Ehud's pictures, though, too. Uh, it was it was fun to do it. It was. Uh, I've wanted to record it for a long time. I, you know, it, it made me really want to do some of the other ones too. There's some incredible arrangements of other oh, songs. Oh yes, that you, did. you could do a whole record of that. That's beautiful. I mean, I wish we could. Somehow we have to get back and do that because it was it was really cool. But, now, Amazon yeah. is going to release this at some point? or Yeah, I think in January, probably something like that. They're not sure when, but uh, yeah. Yeah. We're mastering uh, tomorrow, I believe. We've been going back and forth uh, with the mixes because they're still in England. Right. Uh, Vince and Jonathan, the engineer. It's hard to do it that way because you, you don't get – usually you'd spend a whole day with something, or I like to be in the studio when we're finishing things. But you already lost most of the day by the time you wake up here. You know, at 8 o'clock, it's already 1 over there. So, you know, you're into the afternoon. Right. Uh, you know, and if you don't wake up till 10, you know, okay, it's 3. Now you're really... 
only have a few mixes left in the day that you can do. You know, right. it's pretty tight. Yeah. Did you guys do any rehearsing of it? Did you spend any time with it, or that just came from the memory of doing it? Because that's no. a song you really haven't done a lot. Uh, I mean, I think the the guys ran it a couple times before they started with the strings. I I was trying to avoid that. I sang it maybe once with them there that day before we did it. Um, that's about it, though. No. I mean, I was trying not to think too much about... It's a problem when you have a really good version of something. You, you get caught up and you don't want to lose any of the cool stuff you did. But then if you're constantly trying to remember what you did, it, it stops you from doing something new. It's good. Right. So it's a, it's a, it, with, a, with something like this, where there is a great version that we did 13 years ago now... Uh, it's hard because, like, I really got my phrasing right in that version. And mm. I was really trying to – because the hardest thing for me in this song, the notes, there's nothing really hard to sing. It's the phrasing. Like, it's a very open song, so you really want great phrasing. I don't know if most people understand what that is, but it's – A perfect example of that is One by, by Bono when he sings One. Uh, if you take the way he phrases that out, it's a nice song with a beautiful melody. But the way he phrases the the verses of that song is – makes all the difference in the world. I'm trying to think of other examples. Of well, There's all maybe. Sinatra, really. It's, it's like right. you want to be in the pocket as a band member in a way. You want to be in the rhythm of the music that's going on. But as a singer or any kind of soloist, you also want to be able to be free from that. So you don't sing the same repeated rhythm melody over and over right, and over and over again. I didn't want to bring up your stuff, but there's many examples in, in County Crow's music where you're doing that. You're yeah, and, and this song in particular, because there's so few things on it in a way, it's all about the phrasing, and it's such open phrases, uh, such open like line readings you can do. You know, there's a lot of places to go with that, and uh, that was the biggest struggle for me. Was like, I wanted the phrasing to be really great, um, and I think it turned out pretty well. You know, uh, it was hard though. I was constantly thinking of how I had done it then, and it was distracting. Uh, but. I think we really turned out. Uh, oh, it's amazing! Kind of a cool way to do it, and it's funny too because when you first started to play it, you didn't tell me what you were going to play, and I was fooled for a moment because I was like, I, I shut up for the rest of it because I wanted to hear every note and everything you did there, and I, I, I tried to notice and make mental notes of the changes, the things. So I've been listening to the Disney's version, all of those versions of those songs, like you said, are so beautiful. But the Mendoza, that the strings are exactly the way they were in Disney. So when you when it sounded so clear and the bass was right there, and I thought, oh wow, he, they finally mixed this. Maybe they mixed the whole concert, you know. And then uh, and you were like, no, we redid it. And like, what? It's crazy. And I must say, um, you haven't lost a step. Your your uh, your the timbre of your voice and everything could it be nineteen ninety three two thousand five. It's incredible. Well, it's a weird thing. Uh... That's a nice thing, and the, the weird thing about playing with orchestras is that they can come right in and play it exactly the same way, yeah. and it's a completely different orchestra. This is kind of the London Symphony people, you know, and uh, wow. They, they, but they, they, you know, you have a conductor in the orchestra. They'll come in and recreate something from over, you know, thirteen years ago. They're just good at that. Yeah, because they're doing stuff from four hundred years ago. <laughs> it's hor- harder for us, you know. It's like yeah. it's not we're not as used to doing that. Other bands, yes. This band, no. Like <laughs> one thing we don't do is play things very much the same way we did then. Yeah. So the night before, you know, that's a uh, that's a little harder for us, especially when you're haunted by what you think was a great version of it. Um, or you could say you were motivated or inspired by. 
Yeah, but because it was distracting, I'm going to use haunted because it was it was <laughs> difficult. It made it hard because, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure to get certain things. Like I knew that version was great. I wanted to get that on tape and then be free to do other stuff too. But you know, it's hard to think about being creative and remembering something at the same time. Those can be those are antithetical to each other. Those two desires, in a way. Um, I Anyways, think, that's what we did. It was fun. It was it's spectacular. People are gonna love hearing that. And it feels it, like a real shitty tease to talk about it all this time and not, not play, play it. it. Usually, what we do on the podcast yeah. is play it, but I can't play it for any of you. Yes, it's but not it's done coming. Anyways. Right, so it's a good promo. And I, and 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 just as a, a final addendum to that, I think it's perfect because uh, the band celebrating 25 years uh, and then the 20, 25 years and counting tour. And it reminds me to ask you one thing that we weren't able to talk about because remember when you were, came off the road and I we had that respite there before you went back out. We played a lot of the artists that were going to be at the the um, Underwater Sunshine Festival. So you and I really haven't talked too much. I just wanted to ask you one thing, or, or I wanted to compliment you on on the stories that you were telling during the tour this summer. Uh, you took time in a few songs to tell stories, background stories, to introduce the songs. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up separately to that is that the one story that really – hit home for me I thought it was really beautiful and you know I didn't even get a chance to compliment you after the show because like, we took off and you guys had to go that night so I didn't see you after the show what show? Uh, the Jersey show is where I saw you guys this summer oh. that's the one show I saw and um, is the story about you being a kid and listening to the trains and dreaming about you know making it and, and, and everybody in the band or all the musicians that you were with that's the one thing you just kept going and going there was a chance that you won't make it and, and for me I was in a band that didn't make it but we tried and People around us were trying. It's a whole generation of people. Every generation has those who dream of doing what you do. And I thought that story was poignant and well done. And as a writer, and I know you took time to write that stuff out and actually think about it. You didn't just blow it off the top of your head. It, it was a beautiful way of storytelling. And I thought that was a great way to couch a lot of the songs this summer. So congrats. It's funny because I, I spent all this time in the months leading up to the tour when I had plenty of time to prepare that stuff, trying to come up with stuff and failing to come up with anything. <laughs> and then the first night of the tour in Boise, I did eight spoken word sections off the top of my head. Oh, <laughs> We had to cut five or six songs off the show because I talked so much. Um, but then I spent the rest of the summer, same fucking thing, trying to remember what the hell I'd said. Oh, okay. So you didn't write. Because I remember you telling me you did well, write Well, I did. Stuff. After that, I started like oh. – I went back. I got the tapes. I edited stuff down. I wrote. I, you know, I came up with stuff, new stuff. But – the first night I did a bunch of it off the top of my head and the next like all I'm trying to do after that is like, I, I suddenly realized I can't do that every night. Right. I, now I can't remember. I had to go back and study the first night's concert uh, and and like take dictation of myself in a way. Yeah, and by the time I saw it, I don't know how many – that was at least a month into the tour. Uh, you really had it down. It was, it was really, really well done. The band did a great job of giving you a background. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting way – of sort of couching your your career and the songs and putting them into perspective. It's not the first time you've done it. I mean, I've got bootleg tapes of you, you know, talking uh, extensively about the song. And, of course, I know you guys did Storytellers. But this seemed very structured. It's it, beautifully done. It reminded me of a couple of things when I saw Townsend play solo where he would sit for about two or three minutes and really give you a background into what he was thinking at time when he wrote this song. And not just that, but a metaphoric story. That one stuck with me the most because it wasn't just, yeah, I wrote this song. I was about this girl and we went here and this is where I was in my life. It was this, you, you encapsulated what it was like to be in a band as a young kid and what we all were thinking about. And I, and I love the metaphor of the train. 
this idea of this, it's going places. It's going to go. And we talked about that briefly when we did the Paul Simon uh, podcast. Remember the, the story about the trains in the distance? And uh, it reminded me of that. It was really cool. And, I, and I, I'm not really sure I texted you or emailed you afterwards, but I, I did want to mention that. That's, that one particularly hit home for me. But I, I love the It's not really a metaphor of a train. That. We just lived right by the train yeah. tracks. <laughs> you we, did. We lived 50 feet from the Amtrak line. Right. So. That's you and Immer when you were living yeah. in that. Yeah. <laughs> a, There's no I metaphor mean, it becomes there. a metaphor in other songs, but at that point, it's just we live next to the train. Right. Um, and I, but I do think that that period in my life Living there has completely the train infected me in a million ways, and I say infected as opposed to affected because it got in my spine and my brain, and it's been a part of like you know I, I write about trains a lot because they're I slept through them and dreamt about them, and I don't know. You live next to a train; it, it's like it is the sound of your life at that point. Because you, you, man, that is that is a you hear that. You hear it during the day. You hear it in the middle of the night. It is an omnipresent part of your life when you live next to train tracks. And, you know, let's face it, it pops up in my songs a lot. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I think there's probably, I've probably caught some shit at some point from people about, certainly critics about, oh, here's another train oh. image. Like, it's just this, <laughs> this like, cliched image. But, you know, the truth is I, I live next to the train tracks. Right. Trains are in my head. And, uh. Anyways, you 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 had some music you want to talk about today. And, I did. Uh, yes. What do you want to start with? You want who do you want to talk about first? Well, I'd like to. I, just, I had a really uh, I had a great conversation. As everybody knows here, that I, I wrote this book about Warren Zevon. It came out this summer, and uh, one of the people that were very close to Warren, uh, Jorge Calderon, who was a songwriter who wrote about sixteen or seventeen songs with Warren over the years. They were friends from the very early seventies, and it was Jorge who uh, ushered Warren through that final record, The Wind. And we really had some deep conversations about that, and it fills the final chapters of my book. Well, while I was doing that with him, because I did several of them, he would tell me, hey, I'm recording songs again. And I thought that was so beautiful. It was a perfect parallel to what was going on. Him, you know, sort of finishing up Warren's career and life, getting him through it, and then going back and mining through songs. And I always talked about Jorge being one of those guys, the quintessential sort of classic songwriter in a sense where he came up during the songwriter period and he helped so many other people realize their songs. I mean, he toured with, with Warren. He toured with uh, David Lindley and Ry Cooter. He worked with Jackson Brown and he, he worked with uh, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. He was, he was instrumental in kind of getting them all together. He got Mick Fleetwood and, and John McVie to play on Werewolves of London. He was always kind of in the background, like a zealot guy. And, and I, I was always very impressed by the way he would talk about songs, just the way you do when we, when we had our conversations about the... Uh, about the uh, you know your songs for the book, and of course what we were just talking about with August and everything after. So I spent about two hours with uh, Jorge on Sunday just chatting about the songs, and I, I had been listening to the record for a couple of weeks, and I did it as a favor to him. I wasn't sure I was going to love it. But I got to tell you, every song on that record really speaks to me. I think it's, it's a well-structured record, but it just shows you a real serious songwriter practicing his craft, and he got a ton of real cool people to play on it. I mentioned them, a couple of them here, Lindley and... And uh, and Ry Cooter, uh, Bob Glob, and um, and uh, a bass player who plays on a ton of stuff in the seventies, uh, and also uh, Jim Keltner, a great uh, studio session guy. But he recorded this stuff over a fifteen-year period. Whenever he can get time to go in the studio, and thanks to Jackson Brown, who's the executive producer, he let him use the studio. And then it was kind of neat. Here's a guy, um, I believe Jorge now is in his seventies, who has had a swath of music over the last twenty, thirty years. He wasn't able to record, and he finally put it out. Uh, and it's called Blue Rhythm Highway. And like I said, when I went into listening to this stuff, I thought, okay, 
I'm going to give it a real good listen because I love Jorge. But I started to find that these songs are really, really, really good. So I wanted to share some of them with Adam today and, and you too as well. The record just came out, and he's trying to get a band together to do a little tour perhaps in the spring. So uh, let's start with Alicia. Uh, it's a, it's a, um, it's the one real true ballad on the record. It, it, it reminds me very much of what he did with Veracruz um, on the um, a song he co-wrote with Warren that's on Excitable Boy. Uh, it has a little bit of a Spanish flavor in it, and I love the refrains. And it's really a story he told me about a couple of immigrants who grew up in the California area and just made it together and they're just looking back in their lives and talking about how they have to they have to go and cater for like movie stars or drive cabs or or something like that but they're constantly just on the edge of of you know superstardom and riches but they never quite get there but they have each other they're still in love and uh, anyway this is uh, Jorge Calderon from his new record Blue Rhythm Highway and a song called Alicia Can laughter can applause Glee glide slash the tinsel night and we believe it all Alicia We greet the barons, we greet the earls, we bow in
grateful. You know, it's funny. You're, as you're playing this, I realize like Jorge Calderon's been someone I've been familiar with my entire life. I've heard the name and I've always known he was singing backgrounds on this or that or playing percussion, which is, I think what he did with Fleetwood Mac early on or Buckingham Knicks. Yeah. But I don't think I've ever heard a Jorge Calderon song until just then. I think you're right about that. Oh. I, I was just, as you were playing it, I was thinking, I'm trying to remember what the other Jorge Calderon songs I know are. And I realized, I don't, I looked in my iTunes, I don't have any Jorge Calderon records. And I don't think he's made very many. He just made the one. He made that one. And let me see, I'll look it up right now. It, that one that came out in the 70s when they dropped him from a, I think it was, I don't want to get it wrong, but his, his label dropped him. And it's called City Music. City music, correct. And it really hit him hard. He just, he, he said he never came back from that. He just said, he just dropped it and said, I'm not going to get into that world anymore. I just want to play my guitar. I just want to play my bass. I want to play percussion. I want to sing background, whatever anybody wants me to do. I'd want to realize other people's songs. When he played some of these songs for Jackson a couple of years ago, Jackson's like, man, you've got to record songs again. So think about it, like 40 years go by, and the guy never thinks about recording his songs. He's got this whole cache of songs. Well, it's a... Uh... Well, no, I think he made one other record, maybe. But There's a 2015 compilation I, I see here on... On Spotify, I will say there's one great story he told me. He said there's, there's quite a few songs on the record where he talks about his friendship with, with, uh, with Warren. But he said that Warren loved the song off of that first record called Kiss and Run. And he would always say, whenever he complimented Warren on something, he's like, Warren, that song that you, Bahamas Radio, so good. And Warren would just look at him and go, but Jorge, it's no Kiss and Run. <laughs> Which is classic, Warren. Uh, yeah, I think there is another uh, record. I don't know. You know, it's funny, you were, we were just talking a second ago yes. uh, about uh, Stan Lee, who yes. died uh, yesterday, and yeah, it really knocked me out too, and I was trying to figure out, like, what is the thing about that, and I saw someone else sum this up really well in the last couple of days, well, sometime, I can't remember where I read this. Somebody said this, though, that's, that's something like to the extent of you know, we all as people feel powerless at times. And that is the thing about it's 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 the the natural state of a human being living in humanity is to feel at times very powerless. And that Stan Lee took the dreams of powerless people and turned them into the most powerful people on earth. I mean, it's a bunch of Jewish kids sitting in offices in what Madison Avenue in New York in the early '60s, creating Spider-Man and Thor and the Hulk and you know, Giant Man, Ant-Man, giving rebirth to Captain America. And, and I, you know, it's like uh, the DC heroes. As much as I love them, uh, you got. One guy who's a really, really rich guy whose parents are killed, and that gives him this drive to become Batman. But he's a—he's not a normal human being to begin with. He's super rich, super suave when we meet him as an adult, and there's none of those flaws. I mean, later on, uh, Frank Miller comes along and, and gets into the psychology of why he's so driven. But he came from Marvel and, and writing the great Daredevil stuff that he wrote. Uh, you know, and Superman, Superman, like you said... He's an alien. He's an alien, and right. and, all, and he can do basically has no limitations. Can do anything, and uh, even his alter ego. He's supposed to be kind of a nerd, but he's really not. The biggest problem he has is 
you know, he likes Lois and she likes Superman more, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we don't see those kind of flaws. But Peter Parker, I mean, Peter Parker is a poor kid from Queens who uh, is a nerd, likes science, uh, is orphaned too. And he's not only that, but he's living with his aunt and his uncle. His uncle dies right away as well. And he's living with his elderly aunt who's very fragile and he really is a nerd he has a lot of problems not just like not getting girls but like he didn't have any money he's got to get a job he ends up with this job where doing the job he's got to take pictures of spider-man and so the editor can write terrible things about him you know and you know uh thor was a greek god but he's a crippled doctor uh the Hulk is an out of control Frankenstein or Jekyll and Hyde version of his of Bruce Banner, who is a completely uh, like physically weak scientist and out and loses control of himself when he's the Hulk, like lo- utterly loses control, which is kind of a terrifying situation to find yourself in. Mm-hmm. You know, these people had flaws and foibles. Uh, the Fantastic Four were a family. And they weren't just superheroes, they were explorers in a way, you know, and scientists and when they came up with the X-Men, the idea of mutants as like a minority that was part of their up their like the whole basic storyline behind them was that they're a minority, which is an issue in the rest of the world, but not in superheroes normally, you know, uh, and he creates all these people that, like I said, he takes the dreams of the powerless and turns them into something inspiring and powerful. And he has them captivates at least a lot of young boys, you know, for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then eventually everyone, because they become, uh, icons. Well, also the stories we all want to see in every form now, because they're the biggest movies there are. I mean, in the last 50 years, the two probably most important characters of storytelling that the world latched onto are Harry Potter and, and friends and uh, the Marvel characters in a lot of ways. Those are the, those are the stories of our time. The Lord of the, of our, the Lords of our rings in a way, you know, the, uh, those are the stories that captivate everyone from children to adults. And, you know, and, and this guy in this office on Madison Avenue with a couple guys, Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, created all of this. And I, he's the only one of the three that was alive recently. I think the other two have passed away a while yes. ago. Steve Ditko, Ditko died just a couple of months ago, actually. Oh, really? That recent? Yeah. And Kirby's yeah. been dead for this a while. summer, yeah. Um, you know, and although they created characters, too, they were more artists, the two of them. Although they created plenty. I shouldn't say that. Kirby especially created plenty of characters. Yep. And Steve Ditko, now I think about it, wrote stuff, too. But... And he also created Spider-Man. That was always the battle was between, you know, that Stan took a lot of credit for creating Spider-Man, which he did, the concept of Spider-Man and the backstory, everything you're talking about. Yeah. But the costume, the was, thing, the thing yeah. we all attach. Whoa, that's Steve Ditko. So Absolutely. He's eventually the it became, yeah. But finish your point because I have a couple of things well, just I would that, like, like to add. It really did hit me hard yesterday. Absolutely. Because I don't, I don't really buy comics anymore. I don't buy, I, you know, it was a habit I had to finally kick at some point. You know, like the worst, <laughs> that's probably the worst addiction of my life, that and biting my fingernails. Uh, but when I was a kid, I, I, you know, we moved around a lot. I didn't know a lot of people 
And I didn't have places to put my imagination, so I started reading at a really early age, and I read a ton of books. And I got lost in all kinds of books. You know, all the Robert Heinlein books, the the Edgar Rice Burroughs books, and you know, and uh, but then at one point I stumbled into comics. I think it was when we lived in Houston, and I, I probably had picked some up on in those rotating racks, and you know. 7-Elevens or something but I, I think I found my first comic store in Houston when I was a kid and there was this whole world of like long stories that you could find if you went to these stores and got them um, and after that I read all the time and it, and it, it turned me on to a million, million other things too because you know if you read a Marvel comics you, you learn up you know you learn who Dante is because character from the Inferno. You learn about, you know, I'd already been reading about Greek and Norse mythology when I was a kid. I had books on mythology and I was really into that stuff. They all pop up as comic characters too. Thor, of course. Hercules. Norse God, yeah. uh, you know, and it, there's so much, because these guys are really smart guys who were writing for kids in some ways, but they packed plenty of reference in just as the, the, the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes writers did. Um, they packed all kinds of other information and references in there that drove you to other books and other other thoughts and, you know, time travel in the Fantastic Four that take or the Avengers that ends up taking you to the, you know, the 1600s and Cotton Mather in Salem, you know, and oh, who, what's the Cotton Mather, the witch hunters, you know, you know, there's just all kinds of history that comes out of that too, and I think it was one of the things that really sparked my mind as a young and really energized my mind and my thinking and my dreams and everything I thought of and also silly as it sounds what kind of person you want to be as silly as it sounds I think it's true I wanted to be something really special you know I maybe like Spider-Man who knows you know I joke about that at times with people you know that maybe I turned out to be a pretty good person because I was trying to do stuff like that not to fly around but just like do the right thing. You know, from Stan Lee and Spike Lee. You know? <laughs> right. You, you learn these things wherever you can learn them. Now, what were you going to say? Well, a few things. First of all, I'll agree 100% with that. That's one of the conversations that you and I had before we started working together. When we did one of the interviews is about how much comic books had affected us as kids and gave us sort of a moral direction, gave us sort of a dreamscape. And before Robert Louis Stevenson... And before Mark Twain and, and before, uh, you know, films for me and Kerouac and Hunter S. Thompson, there was Stan Lee. There was Spider-Man. Uh, my dad used to bring the books home from the city. I would grow up in the 60s and the early 70s. He'd bring the books home for me. And, and, uh, and I was Spider-Man every year for Halloween. They would ask, who are you going to be for Halloween this year? What are you talking about? I'm Spider-Man. Spider-Man. That's my time to be Spider-Man. I think I was Spider-Man for like four straight years from the age of five to ten because that's what I was. You, you don't change. I'm Spider-Man. The cartoon uh, fired my imagination. It's hard for me to speak about Stan Lee without getting emotional only because, again, I can't say enough. I wanted to be – I wrote this yesterday. I put it on um, on Instagram, but it's, it's real short. But I, I, there's no way I could say it better. Uh, I am a writer today because of Stan Lee Martin Leiber. His work awoke my imagination and gave a young mind direction and purpose and man oh man a lifetime of entertainment. But it was his book, The Origins of Marvel Comics, and I have (laughs) spoken about this quite a bit over the years with friends, students, and interviewers. 
that tipped the existential scales for me. There is a line in that book, and I'm paraphrasing here, where Lee marvels, pun intended, at the connective emotional and intellectual tissue of what it is to have something come out of your head, share it with the world, and know that someone tonight will go to bed reading it and have it on their night table in the morning. You get to be with people through your words and move them, if you're lucky, and inspire them and enrage them and frighten them and entice them and appeal to the best intentions without artifice, with no net or social preconceptions or anything that comes with the art of communication beyond the written word. I have Stan Lee to thank for that. Since reading that line, I knew what it is what I wanted to do with the rest of the time allotted to me on this planet. He had 95 years of it. I'll take it. Excelsior. I really Enough said. Thanks. <laughs> well said, enough said, right. Um, I don't oh, – I should have used that. Man, you always get that. Part. Excelsior is perfectly good. It, thanks. Those are the two things he said all the time. Enough Excelsior said for sure. and enough said. Make mine marvel. Um, what Adam said about the characters is true. I was just saying this yesterday to some young people who didn't grow up with Stanley or comic books. And I said you have to remember and, – and I can't do it any better than – that Mr. Dortz just did, but it, you know, you, 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 Peter Parker is a kid from New York. I was a kid from the Bronx. All the stories took place in New York. So when I go to the big city with my dad, where he worked at Avon on West 57th Street, I'd see the Empire State Building and I'd see, you know, that Staten Island, you know, the ferry and then the, the, the Manhattan Bridge. And I'd say, oh, that's, that's where Gwen Stacy died. You know, actually, I think she died on top of the Brooklyn Bridge. But anyway, the point is, these were touchstones, but they were real. And the fact that he did, he couldn't get a decent date, he couldn't get a decent job. None of these things were lost on a 10-year-old for me. And uh, it made me want to tell those stories, and I'm so glad for him. And uh, it really hit me hard yesterday that it, when I found out. And I, I wrote you, I think I wrote one other person, I wrote you right away. Yeah, you told me. I didn't know until you said that. Uh, you know, it's funny also, because for me, uh, you want to know directly how it affects songwriting? I grew up fascinated with Palisades Park because Palisades Park advertised in the back of comic books. Right. And I always wondered what it was. Like, I thought it was actually on Coney Island. But the truth is, they, somebody figured out that 50% of the comics purchased in America were bought in the New York City, New York, New Jersey area. And so, if you were a local business, you could just advertise in a comic book. You know, a local business in New York, it works. Because right. you're in most... Local business doesn't work for them to advertise in a comic book, but a one in New York, it absolutely works because it's right there, you know. And uh, I grew up wondering what Palisades Park was, and it was kind of a mythical place in my mind all this time, you know. In the same way that trains got in my head, in some ways, Palisades Park did as well because I saw it in the back of this comic book all the time. Um, that stuff uh, had a big effect on my life, and yeah. I mean, I'm glad those fucking things are out of my house. It took me two or three months to organize those goddamn things after my parents sent them all here. Oh, yeah. I don't know how many, 10 or 20,000 of them. Oh, my God, it was a fucking nightmare. <laughs> so glad that shit is out of the house now and in storage. Uh, I got to sell it one of these days. It's just. You know, I did. I went to a Comic Con with my brother this past summer. And because the, the, the uh, Venom movie was coming out, the Venom issues, the first McFarlane issues. Spider-Man 298, 299, 300, which is like the last time I really bought. I, I, I was still getting Spider-Man in the mail. I, I subscribed to Spider-Man for about 10 years in the late 80s, early 90s. It would just come, and I would just look at it, and most of the times it was shit. But when McFarlane took over, he was – it blew my head. Blew that guy my, drew webs really well. 
He did. Those webs are sort of like tubular almost. And he brought the webs out of the arms back, which I love from the 70s. Ross Andrew is my favorite Spider-Man uh, artist. I grew up with him. Later on, of course, for Mitta, and then you go back to Ditko. I used to get the Marvel Tales where they reprint the original ones. And I wanted my daughter to have all those. I'm going to keep it. But anyway, so <clears throat> I'm looking around. I'm saying, they want 800, 750, 1,000 mint condition of these things. So I was like, um, excuse me. Uh, and the guy's like, yeah, if you got these and they're in decent shape, People were giving me cards. We will buy them. And I thought for sure I would run home and pull it out, but I kept hesitating. Why am I hesitating to sell something that I paid, you know, two bucks for in 1989, 1990? Why don't I just sell it? It's like I can't get rid of it. My albums I'm never going to sell. They're going to be bequeathed to my daughter. But those are the things I collected with great care and great aplomb as a kid. But, but I stopped with comic books, and I won't let go of those early ones, the ones I told you that my dad brought back from the city for me, like the, the ones in the 60s, the late 1960s. You know. But these ones, they mean something because I like them, but I, I should, you know, I could put money into my kid's college fund with this. Why don't I get, you know, it's, it's a weird connection that we have with these with these inanimate objects. But anyway, thank you, Stan Lee, for everything that you ever did to spark my imagination and the, the countless hours. Uh, I didn't travel as much as you, but I'll never forget our trip down to Florida. I had a stack of comic books. I mean, everything's on a, on a phone now. My, my daughter takes a pad up to Syracuse. You know, I had uh, the whole half the back seat was comic books and my brother. <laughs> oh, yeah. I used to like uh, go to Comic Cons in the early days before they were these big things where they premiered movies. You know, they had, it'd be like a, a ballroom or a conference room at the Claremont Hotel or the Jack Tar Hotel in San Francisco. And you just go over there, and it would be a chance to go around. I'd bring a little briefcase that my dad had, like, stopped using, and I had put comic stickers on, and I would carry my briefcase, which clicked open like they do, and <laughs> I would go, and I would buy – I would search through all the things, the used racks, and buy comic books, you know, like – and then they'd have a couple of different rooms where they'd have film projectors, and they'd be showing movies, and it would be like uh, King Kong and Godzilla versus. Uh, Mecha Godzilla, you know, yeah, sure. uh, you know, like those movies, the Ultraman series would be, you know, they'd show stuff right. in those rooms. Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, <laughs> yeah, Gigantor, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, like cool stuff, and you just like watch movies all day. I'd go by myself too. I wasn't wasn't I didn't have any friends who were into that stuff, so I would just go by myself, you know, and I would come home with a full briefcase the end of the day and then i just read it was like halloween in a way you know yeah that stuff sustained us it really did then i got into other stuff after that but it it made me want to read and and again i can't say this enough like i said before any of the other stuff before i started to get alighted in high school and, and and creative writing teachers or my journalism teacher were like hey you got shot you could do this it, it, it was something I wanted to do. I wanted to tell stories. You know, I thought maybe I'd be a fiction writer. I know a lot of journalists go that way. But it was then, – then, of course, music sparked my interest, and that's why I started writing about music. But anyway, getting back to the whole thing uh, is that it's people like Stanley, as you mentioned, these guys in these small rooms that make this stuff up. And that always was like, what a thing to do. What a thing to get paid to do or to do and, and have people react to. It's just what I – 
it makes perfect sense to me that anybody would want, after reading something like that, want to make your own uh, characters. And me and my friend Chris Barrera, when I moved to Jersey when I was like 11, we would, we would sit in the basement all summer and make our own comics. And we'd have my father mimeograph them at work, or mimeograph them, copy them at work, and then bring them back, and I'd sell them for 10 cents. <laughs> One of them was so bloody. We, you know, they had the, you know, we'd say, we were only like, he, my friend was nine and I was 11 or something. We'd say, no one under eight can read this comic. <laughs> Because we couldn't say under seventeen, because we were all under seventeen. So yeah, I mean, it's it's just the art. It's it's the how it's amazing how much that kind of thing can inspire a whole generation of people, and he certainly did. But you know, it's funny. All the eulogies I read yesterday was always a mogul and this and and you know these huge this huge empire he built and everything. But to me, it goes back to the great story about the Spider Man and the Fantastic Four is when he created the Fantastic Four. Where you said they were family, but they're bickering and yelling at each other. They have these foibles. They they're not like these. Perfect people saving the day. You know, the, the the Human Torch is a vain teenager, and 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 uh, Mister Fantastic's always jealous of everything. And of course, the thing is this depressive, crazy, violent. I, I love that. Yeah, no, I mean they had real personalities in ways that other comics didn't have. They were more like stoic heroes. But the the Marvel comics, the Stan Lee way, was that real people. Or right. at least like multifaceted people, if they're not, you know, maybe that's not real, but they were so much more detailed. They had real problems. Just... They were relatable people. Yeah, yeah. And and then finally, his the great story about Spider Man is that the first Spider Man appears in Amazing Fantasy in fifteen in nineteen hundred and sixty two, and what happened was they said, "Well, we're going to kill this book." And, and, and Stan had been pitching this Spider-Man character, and, of course, everybody there was like, nobody wants to read about a Spider-Man. Spiders are disgusting. People kill them with their shoes. It's awful. And he's like, finally, he had Amazing 15, and they said, we're going to kill this book. We, we, we're contracted for one more. Do whatever the hell you want with it. One of those stories. So he's like, now I can do my Spider-Man. And it sells off the shelves, and they're like, hey, do a Spider-Man book, and the rest is history. So, yeah. Crazy. Stan. It's funny how many of those characters didn't, you know, Thor comes up in Journey into Mystery. There were those like yes, anthology come. comics back right. then, and you, you, a lot of these characters came in those comics. Fantastic Four comes in Fantastic Four One, and I don't remember about Iron Man, but I think it's another comic. But like Amazing Fantasy for Spider Man and Journey into Mystery for Thor. Right, it's something like that. If, you know, they had those anthology books that people bought. Yeah, it's know. a brilliant idea to bring it in. Excuse me, you know, we're going to kill this thing anyway, so do whatever the hell you want. He's like, now I can throw the dice out there. Maybe it's, it is stupid, but it turned out to not be stupid. So, no, uh, in the end. Uh, I did want to play, do you mind if I play one more song? No, by wait, let's go back to Jorge. Sorry, I just, uh, we were talking about that, and I felt like... Uh... This is actually a good segue, because this song, The Western World, uh, uh, is the other one I wanted to play off the record. This is a little more upbeat, but it's funny. I love it. It's got a lot of his uh, sort of... Um, uh, Puerto Rican uh, emphasis in the way he he uh, he phrases this song, but also you know uh, pistoleros and bandoleros. So he was telling me that Bill, he's friends with Billy Bob Thornton, who was also friends with Warren, and they recorded a couple of songs at uh, Billy Bob's uh, studio, which he had bought from Slash, put in a basement in the house that he bought from Slash right before Warren uh, was diagnosed. And then when he was recording the Wind, they went to play with Billy Bob and uh, and and a side band he had. And Jorge played the bass on that record, and he was hanging out. And so they became friends. And he said he had a conversation about a year later with Billy Bob who said, um, you know, somebody should write a song about – not about Westerns, but about people who play in Westerns. <laughs> you know, like uh, all the people we know like the, you know, the, the, in the John Ford ones, you know, like John Wayne and, and all these characters. So Jorge did that. He, you know, he lived in Hollywood. He saw it all the time. And, and so he decided to write this song about the Western world, about how we – the Western world is the West, but also about how 
the Mexicans and the, and the Native Americans are always the villains in that one. And they're the ones always that get taken down. So it's, it's a very Jorge. The one thing I learned about Jorge, as you said, you never really heard Jorge songs. He was the guy that had a little bit of the darker humor that added. Warren always had that. But whenever the two of them got together, they would push each other. How about this line? This is even sicker. This is crazier. So Jorge has that a little bit, and I think that, that, that forms itself into this song. Anyway, this is the Western world off of Jorge uh, Calderon's brand new album, which is fantastic, Blue Rhythm Highway. I was a bounty hunter Hunting down Jesse James Living every cop-book stream Setting the sky in flames Jesse could twirl a six-gun coat, look mean as a Texas gnat. He'd walk right in all suited up, wearing a dead man's hat. By the banks of the Rio Loco, east of the Pecos Trail, he'd held a four-up filled with gold and ridden outside the pale. Tailing through deep Poodle Creek in the hollers of Arkansas Where some folks said he was doing quite well Living outside the law We make all the bandoleros Hit the dust and curl We jail all the pistoleros Here in the western world We leave all the wild banditos With their nuts in a burn Dine with our old amigos here in the Western world. I took with the Lone Pine Posse, we went gunning for the Lasso Kid. For he and the Crawford Bandit knew where the gold Hid. It came to be one rut gut dawn and a bone rustling ride With Jesse, me, and a blood red sun with no place to hide I caught him crawling like a sandpit snake He was hedging his bed When a Choctaw wind came barreling through And they tore up the damn set Catman dude in a Maui shirt Sam Peck and Paul Cat Ran in screaming Better grab your gear Billy boy this is a rap We make all the Bandoleros Hit the dust and curl We jail all the Pistoleros Here in the western world We leave all the Wild banditos With their nuts in a burl And dine with our
okay, that one really sounds like Warren Zevon. <laughs> it does. Like that. It's good. I realize it's because, you know, also because Jorge's singing the harmonies there and he sings a lot of the harmonies on the Warren records. Yeah. But that really sounds like a Warren. Also, it's just the, that mid period of Warren's that, that could be him too. The melody sounds, and probably because Jorge really had his imprint on a lot of Warren's material, that one sounds like a Warren song. It does. And uh, the last Warren reference I'll make is that, uh, he, Jorge said to me, it's funny because he'll be talking to me. He'll go, yeah, that's one of those classic, uh, you know, uh, gag songs we used to do. And I'm like, gag songs? What's that mean? Oh, oh, yeah, Warren used to call these things gag songs. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you know, where you think you're going this way and then at the end, bang, it goes that way. And in this song, I, I you know, buried the lead as he does but where I, I led with it, which you're supposed to do, which basically explain to you that this is a song about – Western actors, but the whole song is talking about you know out in the West and all these different things. And at the end, uh, the last lines is really great because it, it gives it away. Where he says, "Catman dude in a Maui shirt and a Sam Peckinpah cap ran in screaming, better grab your gear, Billy boy. This is a rap." So everything he's talking about is a movie. <laughs> it's not real. It's uh, it's the whole time he's been talking about these guys acting in a movie, and uh, and it's great. So it's sort of a. It musically like Warren, but he called it the gag song, where at the end you find out exactly what the song is uh, portending. So, Anyway, so please uh, check out the entire record. There's some beautiful ballads on here, some great blues tunes, excellent guitar playing by Ry Cooter on some of the bluesy songs. But it really is. It's a great journey. And I told him, you know, you're the kind of guy that could put out a record like this because you have such a great history. And, and he said, you know, it's funny, it is a kind of history because a lot of these songs date back to the early 70s and mid-80s, songs I just kind of had, you know, the skeletal aspects of, and then we finished it. So it's kind of neat. You know, I wanted to uh, – we saw Richard Thompson play the other night, and I, I really would like to do a whole podcast on that at some point. But uh, in the meantime, uh, it, it just really knocked me out. I wanted to play something. Because, I mean, I've been in Richard Thompson. I must. I don't know how many times I've seen him, uh, and and this was stunning. I mean, he's got to be about seventy now, and he is still maybe my favorite guitar player. And he's still like just blistering to watch play. But he's one of those rare guys, the the kind of triple threats that, where you know. There aren't a lot of those guys who can sing, write lyrics and music, and also play the shit out of something. I mean, in the guitar, the ones you think of, at least for me, that at that level, there's three guys, really. You got, uh, maybe I'm forgetting, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, and, and Richard Thompson. Uh, I don't know that there are, at that level, I right. mean, there are other guitar players, but, you know, maybe kind of Pete Townsend, but he didn't make a lot of albums where he sung. He made a few. Right. Not a ton, you know. Not and uh, and you know, and not known for his virtuosity, the way. Yeah, I mean, guys. a great guitar player in a different way, a rhythm player. Right. Uh, you know, and Keith Richards, not really a great singer. This is a couple songs. There's not a couple. There's more than that. There's some Stone songs that are kind of great that he sings. Certainly right. a great writer and a great guitar player, but wasn't really. But Thompson's, you know, in a, in a, as you say, is an accomplished singer, beautiful harmony singer, great, you know, range. I mean, well, this is sort a, of not a great range, and not. A, I don't think he has like a great voice. The other one. 
you could really argue is Dylan, who actually is a great guitar player as well, and Correct. a great singer. And, and, and we talked about how good the guitar player Paul Simon is, underrated guitar yeah. player. Yeah, neither of them really soloists, though, which is kind of, I guess, what I'm thinking of. But yeah, actually, Paul Simon and Dylan, you, I, I'd probably include them in that if I'm thinking about it, but neither of them really is a soloist. Right, I know in this exactly way. what you're talking and about, sure. They're both accomplished guitar players, especially acoustic guitar players. But Richard Thompson is like not only one of the great electric rock and roll guitar players of all time, uh, maybe my favorite soloist in some ways, other than maybe Jimi Hendrix, but also a completely distinct, different acoustic guitar playing style. That like not only is he this blistering soloist and electric guitar player, but he's also like in a completely different way has a, a, a whole style of his own of playing acoustic guitar that is, you know, very unique. And I mean, I know some guys. There's guys like. Davy Graham that were like the great acoustic guitar players, you know, and there's guys that are great electric guitar players, but you know, you don't often find the guys who really excelled and were original composition and execution in both. And he, man, I mean, cause there's whole tours where he just tours acoustically because it makes more sense to do that because honestly it's cheaper to go with a round with an acoustic guitar. But you know, there haven't been that many tours where I've gotten to see him electric. And those were some of the greatest shows of my life. And the other night, man, he's got this band now. This guy, Taras Prodaniuk, I think his name is, the guitar, the bass player. And Michael Jerome, who might be the best drummer I've ever I've seen in, uh, in years. He's incredible. Like, I'm watching maybe my favorite electric guitar player, and I cannot take my eyes off the drummer, who is just so colorful and inventive as a player and so powerful and, like, moving as a player. But... He he was blowing my mind on the drums. This guy was so incredible. But um, there were a couple points in the show where he just, everyone left the stage and he just stood up there with an acoustic guitar and played. And it reminded me of like, because I grew up with him in, in Fairport Convention. I, I Those are some of those records I got in England, you know, um, on that trip we've talked about, mm-hmm. you know, and... Actually, I got all the I I got all the Richard Thompson and Linda Thompson albums, and I got all the Fairport albums on that trip, because the only thing I'd heard up to that point was "Shoot Out the Lights," the last record he made with his wife, at, before, before they split up. Um, and it is a devastating record about a a, a divorce, and uh, I mean, and they made it in the throes of a divorce. They toured as they're falling apart. <laughs> well, we talked they about Fleetwood it. Mac. It's like that. Or, or, the, or the, you know, blood, we were just talking about Blood on the Tracks earlier before we ran to, you know, did the podcast. Yeah. That would be like, you know, him doing an album with Sarah. <laughs> I mean, but like he, it's incredible because he writes all the songs and some of them are from her perspective and they're very even-handed. Um, I'll get more into that at a later date. I just, I wanted to play one or two things. Just, we'll get into the electric stuff on another day, but acoustically, I just wanted to play um, a couple of his stuff from later. There's this one called 1952 Vincent Black Lightning, which is a, a song about a guy in his motorcycle. He's kind of an outlaw guy, and he's kind of a badass, and he's talking to the girl about his bike and how fucking cool it is. Um, and uh, he ends up, you know, doing the outlaw thing, gets shot and dies, and leaves for the bike. Um but it's just a story about this kind of outlaw guy, modern, and, and his bike, this, this, this motorcycle. And it's, but the, the acoustic guitar playing on it is 
Well, I'm going to play it for you. This is uh, from his album Rumor and Sigh, uh, which has got to be late 80s, I think. This is Richard Thompson, 1952, Vincent Black Lightning. Feel special on any such like Says James to Red Molly My hat's off to you It's a Vincent Black Lightning 1952 And I've seen you at the corners and cafes it seems Red hair and black leather, my favourite colour scheme And he pulled around behind and down to Bucks Hill They didn't ride Oh, says James to Red Molly Is a ring for your right hand But I tell you an honest, I'm a dangerous man For I fought with the lost I was 17 I robbed many a man To get my Vincent machine Now I'm 21 years I might make 22 And I don't mind dying But for the love of you And if fate Should break my stride Then I'll give you my Vincent To ride Taking a young James A.D. for armed robbery Shotgun blast hit his chest Left nothing inside Or oh, come down Red Molly to his dying bedside When she came to the hospital There wasn't much left He was running out of a road He was running out of breath But he smiled to see her cry I said I'll give you my Vincent to ride. Says James, in my opinion, there's nothing in this world beats a 52 Vincent and a red-headed girl. Now nothing's and Indians and grievances won't do. Ah, they don't have a soul like a Vincent 52 
Oh, he reached for a hand and he slipped her the keys Said, I've got no further use for these I see angels and aerials in leather and chrome Swooping down from a hill and they carry me home And he gave her one last kiss and died And he gave her his Vincent to arrive Now that is a folk song. <laughs> yeah, man. That, that lyric to the last verse says, James, in my opinion, there's nothing in this world beats a 52 Vincent and a redheaded girl. Now Nortons and Indians and Greaveses won't do. They don't have a soul like a Vincent 52. He reached for her hand and he slipped to the keys. He said, I've got no further use for these. I see angels on aerials in leather and chrome swooping down from heaven to carry me home. And he gave her one last kiss and died. And he gave her his Vincent to ride. That's just... Oh, on that first verse, too. I've seen you at the corners in cafes, it seems. Red hair and black leather, my favorite color scheme. I mean, fuck. <laughs> That's, uh... <clears throat> when they played that the other night at the show, both Emma and Zoe turned to me at that moment and said almost in unison, Oh, that's a great lyric. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a classic classic. Well, you know, it it reminds me of like Elizabethan medieval sort of kind of you know song story telling you know the antihero rolling across the the you know the landscape and and living his life and telling tales and love and well, it's it just all encapsulated in this beautifully presented song. And the, the two guitars are just talking, they're just having a conversation there. I mean, you could play that without any lyric at all and that would be entertaining as hell no singing nothing. I mean it's a beautifully structured song um, it's a true folk song in every uh, sense of the word it's great it's great yeah I mean he's just got a a real style there it's funny in the the other night when we saw him play maybe I'll play just one more song to give people a taste of some of it uh, Fairport Convention on its first album was uh a really cool band. They made an impression upon people right away because they were playing a lot of uh, this mixture of British traditional and American rock and roll music that was really interesting how they were doing it. And uh, But they mostly did covers on the first album. They didn't have originals. They were a great band and something like uh, the feel of Jefferson Airplane, but... Di- I'm not sure, but it's very different from that too. That was this kind of cool, loose thing they had about them. Um, and he's maybe sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, right then. Uh, he just come to London, I think, and met these people and started playing. And he's really young, and he's turning a lot of heads as a guitar player right away. Um, but he, uh, I, I read an interview with him at one point where he said, "I was really embarrassed by it because." I thought we were a really cool band, but we didn't have any of our own songs, and we're playing other people's songs. They're great songs. They cover like Suzanne by uh, uh, Cohen, by Leonard Cohen, and Chelsea Morning by some more obscure songs by other people that like weren't right. the popular ones by Joni Mitchell's, Joni Mitchell's uh, Chelsea Morning. Um, and uh, 
he said we were getting all this attention and I was really embarrassed by it because we're still playing these shows and we're playing everyone else's songs and the, he said he was talking to I think Ashley Hutchings the the bass player at the time and he said he got really angry and he said we can't do this anymore we got to write we got to find someone to write songs and you know nobody raised their hand basically and he decided to write some songs now by the time they get the second album they have two singers at that point Judy Dibble and uh Ian Matthews uh and Judy Dibel leaves after that, and the second album they get uh, Sandy Denny, who may be the greatest folk singer ever. Um, but still, by the second album, she's not writing much, and, and he starts to write some songs. And uh, he's only, at this point, maybe 19, 18, 19 years old. Uh, and he writes a few great songs on the second album, which was hugely influential to me, What We Did on Our Holidays. Uh, is the subtitle almost to Underwater Sunshine. I said what we did on our summer vacation, I think, right. like, or summer holidays, but it's completely inspired by that. And we cover a song off what we did on our holidays on that. We cover Meet on the Ledge, which is, uh, I think there's two or three songs by him that he writes on that second record. And one of them is Meet on the Ledge. Uh, the other, one of the other ones, which is I loved, and it was always Matt Malley's favorite song. He introduced me to that. I didn't have, that was the one record I didn't get in England on that trip. What we did on our holidays, and he turned me on to that record years later. And he he turned it on by playing this song uh, called "Tale in Hard Times," and uh, I loved it. I, I I love that song. It's mostly sung by uh, Ian Matthews. Sandy Denny does the harmonies, and Richard Thompson does some harmonies, I think. But it's mostly uh, Ian Matthews. Uh, but the other night when we were seeing Richard Thompson, he says, uh, "So it's a weird thing on this tour. Just sort of decided to." pull out some stuff we have a, want to play some old songs and everybody cheered he's like no 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 not those ones these ones you've never heard and he's like I'm not gonna this one I wrote when I was like he said 18 or 19 years old and uh, we recorded it for an album and then we never played it ever uh, and I want to play it for you tonight you know it's called Tail and Hard Time and I was like you know, I mean I wasn't around then I didn't know they never played it and it's like that's 60 768 uh, I had no idea they never played the song live um, but uh, and then he played it and it was really cool I mean I, I, I I'm sitting in the audience singing the harmonies because I can't help myself yeah yeah um, but uh, it's got a great lyric to the song too it's a pretty simple lyric but the music and his guitar playing on it and he's just 19 years old and I guess they didn't play it ever, which is weird <laughs> to me. I had no idea. I don't know why. Right, right. They played with the band or by himself? He played it with the band. Yeah. Oh, it nice. was really cool, too. Yeah. And they sang the harmony parts, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, was it representative to the original version? Kind of. I mean, it, it blew my mind. I don't, know, I don't know that I would I have the perspective to be able to tell. I was so flipped out to hear it. Right. And Sandy Denny's on this recording, right? On the recording of this record? Yeah, yeah. This song? She, oh, okay, yeah. Probably, the harmonies are probably being sung by Richard and her. Right. I think Ian Matthews takes the lead. Which is as good as it gets. That's yeah. amazing stuff. Yeah, and, it, and it's like... I have a lot of uh, bootleg stuff by them and live stuff by him where he plays Fairport songs, and I had never heard a version of this song. The only person that plays that ever heard it was on that record, and I always loved the song. Yeah, you gave me that DVD of them playing uh, Albert Hall, is it? DVD live. Oh, yeah. It's really cool, too. It's very cool. Anyways, this is a Fairport convention from what we did on our holidays, and then we'll get back into modern times. And we're going to do a whole podcast or two on Richard Thompson sometime soon because 
Yes. I just got to talk we should about start some back of this music. And, and we should go back to the... to the. Yeah, we'll start back with Fairport. Yeah, that's a good point. This will just be a way for me to get a couple of these songs out of here. Yes. Uh, so this is Tale and Hard Time from What We Did on Our Holidays, 1968, Fairport Convention. Yeah, man, that's just a great song. It's just such a great song, and it has that that uh, the same sort of style as you know the, the previous song. He writes in that kind of very, very, like you said, English classic sense of telling a story, uh, 
harmonies are incredible in there. They, you know, they were. It's funny you mentioned the Jefferson Airplane. I never would have thought of that until I just heard that song. The way that chorus comes in, you know, and it's just it very much is like that. It's weird. It's not, and of course Jefferson Airplane really known more for like acid rock or the San Francisco sound and that kind of thing. But um, and, and but it's that's a little the com- different. But they are kind of like that then in the early part of it when they're first starting to write songs. This some of the stuff on this album has more stuff that's more traditional, but like that. As an original song is is to me reminiscent of of uh, Jefferson Airplane in some ways. I, I could see what people say about them as they were developing, turning into what they turned into. The first couple albums, they're closer to Jefferson Airplane just as a vibe before they really discover themselves in the sort of the more traditional stuff and more of his songwriting, like right. on the next record. But there's hints of that here in that song, and yeah. his lead is crazy good. Just really good. And yeah, having said to his bandmate, this is embarrassing. We have to write some songs. We have to find somebody to write some songs. And he looks around. Nobody does it. Okay, I'll write a couple. And he comes up with that, which is a fucking great song. It is. Um, you know, you're, we're talking about it. We probably should wipe up. Wipe up. We should probably wrap up this episode because we're getting. Uh, so since we're going to wrap it up, I want to play one more song. And we'll go out on this song. Sure. Uh, this is that was what we did on our holidays. They then make Unhalf Breaking and uh, Legion Leaf. And Sandy Denny leaves after that. Richard Thompson sticks around for they have a tragedy in there. Some people die. Richard Thompson sticks around for one more album. Dave Swarbrick, the great British violin player and also a great singer and writer, joins after Sandy leaves. And so they have one more album altogether called Full House with. Uh, the rhythm section where Richard Thompson's still there uh, with Dave Swarbrick. And, uh, and then they go on a tour together and they, they made a great live album at the Troubadour in LA. The record they made is the, the, the last album is, is full house. And then they made a record called the uh, house full live at the LA Troubadour, right, right. which is from, I think September of 1970 um, when they played those gigs there. And uh, man, it's just a great record. And uh, the studio album, the ri- the live album. I don't think I've both. heard the live. Studio album is really good. The live album is insane. It's it's full house is the studio album. House full, right? Is the live album from the Troubadour in L.A. club in L.A., which mm-hmm. is a very famous club. Sure, where, uh, I was just there. Well, Elton John Elton started John's his career there. Yeah, started, sure. gets his career uh, it's there. Where Glenn Frey met uh, Don Henley. It's a certainly long Warren played some famous shows very there. Keely Jones. Shows. We played there. Right. Uh, there's a famous Radiohead show from there at the. Anyways, I had some great bootlegs from there, but I'm going to play one song. It's kind of their epic, uh, which is still, I think, part of the repertoire now because Fairport Convention goes on and on. I no mean, kidding. They, oh, no, they're still around. Um, they have a festival of their own called Crow Preeti that was established back then, and Richard Thompson shows up there every now and then to play with them. They have a whole music festival over there. Um, but I'm, this is still part of their repertoire, and he plays it at times too, but it's a great con- song called Sloth, ah. and it turns into an epic solo fest. In the middle. So we're going to end with this. And then we're going to come back on another podcast, maybe in a few weeks, and we'll do a whole Richard Thompson. And we'll start at the beginning, not just Fairport and Richard, Richard and Linda stuff. Uh, And and he played on a bunch of other stuff, too. Nick, You can't go through Nick Drake's catalog without uh, hearing some serious Richard Thompson playing on there. Yes, that's Um, right. He did play with him. So uh, we're just going to take some time to do that research to get that together. But uh, we'll go out on this one. This is Fairport Convention, 1970. It's three or four albums later, but only two years later. 
and a lot has changed. And he's about to leave and start a solo career, and then his of course, career with Richard Denny and Linda left. Thompson yeah, yeah. is, is in, in the next few years after that. But uh, this is the end, the end of his heyday with Fairport Convention. He, so he's at this point, uh, having had a long career in Fairport, he's twenty-two, maybe. Um, wow. He sure. said it when he. I read an article. He said. Uh, yeah, I didn't leave for any particular reason. I just had a gut feeling it was time to go. Uh, there was no fights. There was nothing like that. I just thought, this songwriting thing is cool. I'm starting to get into it. It might be fun to make a record. <laughs> just kind of thought it was time for him to go do his own thing, mm-hmm. you know? And so he did. Sandy had left to start, uh, what's the band she made? Uh, Father and Gay, I think is the name of her band, which is also a song. Um, uh, Ashley Hutchings had left to form Pentangle uh, right before this. Um but this is uh, Fairport, still incredible in 1970 with Sloth. Yeah, good show. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. Peace. Could you, uh, <laughs> somebody arrange for some iced water to be delivered to the stage at the end of this set, this, this number, which is called Sloth. Pronounced Sloth. <laughs> Oh 
Western Road.